exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. When I say in the beginning, I want you to say, was the word. In the beginning, was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible contains many stories about many miracles. And in one sense, all of them are about as unbelievable as the next. Because the, na- the very nature of a miracle is something that defies natural order, something that is supernatural. And in one sense, walking on water isn't more impressive than giving sight to the blind because both are impossible. But if you have to, if you have to rank the miracles of the Bible, there is one that ranks high above the others. And that's the miracle of the incarnation. The word incarnation literally means to take on flesh. And in the miracle of Christian, uh, Christmas, Jesus became incarnate. As we sang earlier, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And so whenever I say Jesus became, I want you to say incarnate. Jesus became incarnate. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And this understanding of the incarnation is what makes Christmas Christian. Christmas has been drained of its meaning by our world. It's become so commercialized that to most people, Christmas is all about presents and preparations and family obligations. We've traded the sacred for the sentimental. And Christmas has just been turned into a crummy commercial sponsored by Ovaltine. And then for others... Christmas is really about family and love and hope, which are good things, all blessings of God, things you should value. Like, I'm glad when people reject the consumerism of this world and prioritize their loved ones, but, but the way that we celebrate Christmas as Christians is by celebrating the miracle of the Incarnation. Because greater than the parting of the Red Sea, greater than the feeding of the 5,000, greater than the resurrection of Jesus is the miracle of the incarnation. Because in the incarnation, the infinite one became an infant. Man's maker was made a man. The creator of bread and water became hungry and thirsty. The truth was accused of lies and the author of life died. And so what I want to do this morning is just to present Jesus before you in all of his glory. And I want to pull back the veil and show you a God who is worthy of your worship. A God who you're excited to worship and that you delight to worship. Because my prayer this morning is simply to fill your heart with awe and wonder because of who Jesus is and what he did in the miracle of Christmas. Because in John chapter 1, we're going to find three titles for Jesus. If, if you haven't turned there already, John chapter 1. I moved the page because of the Chronicles mistake. My mistake. It's on page uh, 1053 or 1053, something like that. But John chapter 1, if you're using a pew Bible, I need to turn them too. Yeah, it's on 1053. So if you haven't already, please turn to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, we're going to find three titles for Jesus. First, in verses 1 through 3, we'll see that Jesus is the eternal word. Second, in verses 4 through 9, we'll see that Jesus is the long-expected light. And third, in verses 10 through 14, we'll see that Jesus is the incarnate Son. Jesus is the eternal word, 
the long-expected light, the incarnate Son. And in every one of these titles for Jesus that we encounter in John chapter 1, we're going to get a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he's done in the miracle of Christmas. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. O Christ, the prophets foretold your coming. The poor longed to see you. The heavens celebrated your birth. The apostles, the martyrs, and the faithful down through the ages repeated the songs of the angels. Lord, we were in darkness, but you have given us light and strength and peace and joy. So we ask this morning that you would give us generous hearts to hear your word. Lord, let us desire your word above all other things. Give us a thirst and a hunger for righteousness that can only be satisfied in your word. And Lord, as I preach, may the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is delivered by the power of the Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Look look with me. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. When Mark wrote his gospel, he started with Jesus' baptism. When Matthew and Luke started their gospels, they began with Jesus' birth. But here the apostle John begins not with Christ's baptism or birth, but he goes all the way back to in the beginning. The exact same way that Moses began Genesis 1, where God spoke the universe into existence, where God made all things by the word of his power. And here in John 1, the word isn't merely a tool that may be understood as something that God uses to create. Here the word is a person, a person who is with God, but also who is in fact God. And if you keep reading, you'll soon discover who the word is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. When Moses wrote Genesis, the Israelites had just been saved out of slavery in Egypt. And in Egypt, Ra was the God of the sun and Horus was the God of the sky and Happy was the God of the Nile. But quick survey, I want to see. Raise your hand if you've read Genesis 1. Yeah, fair amount of people in here. That's good. Okay, in Genesis 1, if you can remember that chapter, how many gods were there? Only one. Yeah, good job. That's, that's exactly right. There is only one. In Genesis 1, there is one singular God who created all things and who reigns over all things, a God mightier than all, a God mightier than the gods of the world or of Egypt or of anything. And that's the testimony of the whole Bible. And that's what makes the, the Bible so unique in the history of world religions. Yet, for some reason... When the Apostle John read Genesis 1, he saw Jesus there. Where was Jesus in Genesis 1? Well, he was creating all things every time God spoke something into existence. And that's why John calls Jesus the Word. Because it was by the Word, by Jesus, that all things were made. And without him was not anything made that was made, as verse 3 says. I remember years ago, my brother and I, we were young, we were in high school, we, we, we had become Christians in a non-Christian home, and we were really zealous, we wanted to go out, and we went to the park, and we'd talk to people about Jesus, I and mean, we were crazy, right? So we, so we go up to this one guy, and we see he's reading the Bible, and we're like, 
Oh, perfect. He's, he's got a target on his back. We got this. So, so we go up and we say, oh, what, what are you reading? He's like, oh, the New Testament. Oh, are you a Christian? He's like, oh, I'm studying with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I go, uh-oh, this is no longer an easy conversation. And, and as, as we were talking, he told me that, that he was convinced by the Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus was not God from all of eternity, but instead Jesus is God's first and greatest created being, that he's actually Michael the Archangel, and then he took on flesh and was called Jesus. So I go straight to John 1. I, I go to John 1 and I say, see, here it says, all things were made through him. So clearly Jesus wasn't created. And he said, well, all things doesn't include Jesus. And then he gave me some really complicated answer about the Greek and the original languages. I, I just didn't know what to say. I, I felt like I, I couldn't answer. But if I could go back to him and talk to him, this is what I'd say, because you do not need to know Greek to be able to answer that objection. Just look at the end of verse three. John does not stop by saying all things were made through him. No, no, no. He goes on to be as clear as possible. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Like in John's mind, there are only two categories of things, creation and creator. And according to verse 3, the only way for Jesus to have been created is if he created himself, and that is impossible. It's actually the same mistake that atheism makes. Like, atheism is the absurd belief in the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything. Like, like if you're an atheist, I'm glad you're here, but, but I just want to ask you, what created the universe? If there was a big bang, what caused the big bang? Because something that was not cannot create itself. And Christianity is the belief that we have an eternal God who is uncreated, a triune, eternal God who created all things. There was never a time when Jesus was not. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And that's why in Genesis 1, when God said, let us make man in our image, he used the plural. And then it goes on to say, God created man in his own image, in the singular. As early as Genesis 1, God spoke of himself both in the singular and in the plural. And John is doing the exact same thing here. And look, I don't think John and Moses were idiots. Like when they wrote these scriptures, they're not being intentionally contradicting. They're trying to reveal a deep spiritual truth that is difficult to wrap your mind around. I think that both of them were just trying to describe truths that were as glorious as they were mysterious. If you believe in a God that you totally understand, it's probably not a real God. It's probably a God of your own imagination. But in the scripture, we encounter a God who is incomprehensible, a God who is so much more more grand and more glorious than any man could have ever invented. And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity is so, so helpful. And let me say, when I was young and I was taught the Trinity, I thought it was supposed to be like a way to imagine God or to draw a picture of God. But let me tell you, the Trinity is not meant to be a blueprint for describing the different parts of God. And I think that's why most people get confused when they have the Trinity explained to them. But... It's much, much more helpful to think of the Trinity as a kind of God grammar. Like just like in English grammar, it lays out the rules for speaking English. The Trinity lays out the rules for speaking correctly about God. 
So, so Katie and I actually lived in Florida for, for two years before we moved up here, moved down there to take care of my 94-year-old grandmother who needed a full-time caretaker, and, and she was sharp right until the very end. And she was a school teacher for 30 years, and, and she was on you if you got any grammar wrong, and she was quick to correct you. So if I would say something like, me and Katie are going to the park, Katie and I, or, or if she asked me, how are you doing this morning? I said, I'm doing pretty good. Superman does good. You're doing well. Grammar lays out the basic rules of good communication. And the Trinity is simply a summary of those rules for talking about God. And here are the rules. There's only one God who is eternal. He exists as three distinct persons. Each person of the Trinity is truly God. And that's how John could say that Jesus was both with God and was God. It's just basic God grammar. And here's John's main point in these three verses, that even though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, his origin story begins long before that, before the wise men gave him gifts, before angels announced his birth, before the Virgin Mary gave birth, Jesus always was. Before the nativity, before the incarnation, before creation itself, Jesus was true God from true God, light from light eternal. There was never a time when he was not. And as the eternal word of the Father, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was not made. Amen, somebody. And that's the first title for Jesus we find, the eternal word. But he's also the long expected light. Look with me to verse four. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Stop there. In verse four, John switches from the metaphor of the word to the metaphor of life. Why? Because as our creator, Christ is the source of all life, both physical and spiritual. There is no other source. Every breath you have ever breathed has been a gift from Christ. And apart from Christ, you and I have no spiritual life. We're spiritually dead, which is what Ephesians 2 tells us, that we were dead in our sins and trespasses because we were all born into this world as sinners, alienated from Christ and the life he possesses, spiritually blind and unable to see the light. That's why John also uses the metaphor of light, because these two metaphors of life and light are really two different pictures of the same reality. So in the same way that those who are without Christ are spiritually dead, those without Christ are spiritually blind. No one has ever become a Christian by their own power. But if you were lost and now you're found, if you were blind and now you you see, it is only because Jesus has found you and has opened your eyes and the light of Christ overcame the darkness of your heart, just like verse five says. Before that, you were as blind as a bat, totally unable to even understand or comprehend the light. If you look at verse five, that word overcome can have two meanings. It can mean to comprehend something or it can mean to overcome something, which is why many of your Bibles may actually say comprehend instead of overcome. And so they translate verse five this way. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So which is it? Did the darkness not overcome the light or did the darkness not comprehend the light? And the answer is yes. 
I think John used this word on purpose as a kind of play on words. I think John was trying to communicate two truths with a single word. Truth one, when Christ shines his light, the darkness loses. Amen? Truth two, those who are in the darkness cannot comprehend the light. Both are true. Christ must overcome the darkness in our hearts for us to believe, and those in darkness cannot comprehend the light. And then right in the middle of this conversation, John stops talking about Jesus. He changes the subject to someone else. Look to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John the Apostle was the final prophet before the coming of Christ. For thousands upon thousands of years, God had sent promise, a prophet after prophet to prophesy about a savior. He had promised to send a savior all the way back in Genesis 3 when he promised to send a snake crusher to smash the head of the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve. And this snake crusher would come to reverse Satan's curse. And if you read the Bible, there is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy slowly revealing what this savior would be like. Genesis 50 tells us that he would come from the tribe of Judah. First Chronicles 17 tells us that he would come from the line of David. Micah 5 tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7 tells us that he would be born of a virgin. Zechariah 13 says that he would be betrayed by a close friend. Zechariah 10 10 says he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 53 tells us that he would be rejected by his own people, yet he would die for their sins. And Isaiah 40 tells us that he would be preceded by one final prophet. One final messenger who would prepare the way for Yahweh the Lord. And here comes John the Baptist after 400 years of silence, by the way. For 400 years, from the time of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, to the time of John the Baptist, there were no new scriptures, no new word from the Lord, no new prophets in Israel. But then here comes John the Baptist to introduce Israel to her Savior as the last prophet before the prophet of prophets. And that's why it's so surprising the way that John the Apostle describes John the Baptist. This passage began with a breathtaking poem about the eternal divine nature of Christ. And then rather unimpressively, John writes in verse 6, There was a man sent from God. His name was John. Verse 7, he was a witness. Verse 8, he was not the light. That was John the Baptist's legacy. He was merely one witness in a long line of witnesses, all pointing to the light of the world. And the good news is that the long-expected light was coming into the world. And that leads us to the third title for Jesus, the incarnate son. Look to verse 10. He was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Stop there. Because the world was in darkness, they could not see the light. They did not recognize the light. They did not comprehend the light. Imagine if if like five minutes into this service, the president of the United States just comes into the back of this church and sits in the back row, and we never even notice it. Like, can you imagine being in the presence of someone with that much power and not even knowing it? That's what it was like 
when Jesus came. He came to the very people who should have been the readiest to receive him. That despite hundreds of biblical prophecies about the coming of Christ, when Jesus came to God's chosen people, the Israelites most rejected him. Verse 12 tells us that, of course, there were some individuals in Israel who did receive him. But there's a reason that Jesus said and preached, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You see, even though it's a popular belief that all people are going to heaven, even though it's a popular belief that we're all God's children, the Bible teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that most people don't go to heaven. And the, the Bible actually says that only those who have received Jesus are God's children. Now, all people are made in the image of God. Every single person is inherently valuable because they are made in God's image. But because of our sin, the Bible describes mankind not as children of God, but as sons of disobedient, children of wrath, children even of the devil. That's why so many are on the broad road that leads to destruction, because we were born alienated from God outside of his family, children of sin. But the good news is that through the eternally begotten Son of God, we may be adopted. Look to verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How do you become a child of God? Receive his son, Jesus, through believing in his name. Listen to me, church. Life is not a thing that Jesus gives you. You can only get eternal life if you have Jesus. The only way to receive eternal life is by receiving Jesus. Because listen to me, when someone believes in Jesus, they are united to him through faith. And it's through that union with Christ that all that he has is yours and all that you have is his. And that's why Paul could write in Galatians 2, I have been crucified Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's only in Christ that our sins can be taken away. It's only in Christ that we can be made righteous. And it's only in Christ that we can become a part of God's family. Because it's through this union, it's through receiving Jesus that now the Father looks at you and I with the same love, approval, and acceptance with which he looks upon his son. Now you may be wondering, if it's really that simple, then why didn't more people receive Jesus when he came to earth? And if it's that simple, why do so many continue to reject him to this day? Well, because... In the same way that a criminal does not go looking for the police, sinners do not naturally go looking for God. Listen to John 3.20 that we read earlier. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Have you ever gone to see a movie right in the middle of the day where it's bright outside, but you go into this dark, dark theater and you sit inside this theater for two hours and your eyes have adjusted to the darkness. 
And then you walk outside the theater, you push the door, and suddenly you're blinded by the light and you shrink back and you have to cover your eyes because you were in darkness and you weren't adjusted to the light. So you have to shrink back from the light. Just like after Adam and Eve sinned and they heard God walking in the garden, what did they do? They hid. And ever since the garden, all of us have been following in their footsteps. And that's why Romans 3 even so clearly says, no one seeks for God. Now that may sound unbelievable to some of you because if if no one really seeks for God, how can anyone become a Christian? And that's a great question. And the answer is in verse 13. Look with me. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The only way for someone to come to faith in Jesus and to be adopted as God's child is if they're first born of God. So how is someone born of God? Well, it's not according to your bloodline. Many in Israel assumed that they were God's children because they were descendants of Abraham. Because of their Jewish blood, they assumed that they were already in God's family. But John tells us that being born of God has nothing to do with your bloodline. It's been said before, God has no grandchildren. He only has children. The faith of your parents cannot save you. The faith of your spouse cannot save you. The faith of any of your family cannot save you. If you have not been personally born again, then Jesus says in John 3, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So how is someone born of God? Well, it's not according to the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. In John 3, Jesus would tell us, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. In chapter 3, Jesus is making the same point that John is making here in chapter 1. Being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. And you can control the Spirit just about as much as you can control the wind. So quick survey again. How many in here have the power to control the wind? Like nobody? Because if you brought in that snow, I want to say thank you. I'm glad we're having a white Christmas. But nobody? Yeah, that's, that's Jesus' point. The wind is an uncontrollable force. We do not know where it comes from and where it goes. And same as the work of the Spirit when someone is born of God. I also want to say, uh, if anyone in here was born, I want you to think back to that time of all the training that you had to do in preparation for your own book. Think about all the books that you had to read on how to be born. Like obviously none of us did any of that because when you're being born, it's an entirely passive event. And that's why this metaphor of being born of God or born again is being used because it's an entirely passive event. You do not cause it, control it, start it, or finish it. So how is someone born of God? In order for someone to be born of God, God must cause them to be born again. In order for anyone to be born of God, God must speak and say, let there be light into a person's heart in the same way that he did in Genesis 1. Otherwise, they will never desire to believe in Jesus. Unless God causes someone to be born again, they will never willingly become a child of God apart from God's intervention. They will never willingly come to the light. And this means that it takes a miracle for anyone to be converted. 
Every single person who comes to faith in Jesus, whether you've grown up in the church for 30 plus years or whether you're hearing the gospel for the first time, it takes the the might and the action of the almighty sovereign God of the universe first to open your eyes and lead them to Christ. And if you're a Christian in this room, that's the miracle that God has done in your heart. And so now the question might be, how do you know if God's done that miracle in your heart? How do you know if you've been born of God? Well, look with me to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Most of the world missed Jesus's glory when he came. But for those who were born of God, they beheld his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. And today, if you have seen the glory of Jesus in the miracle of his incarnation, then you have been born of God. This is why we sing together, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. For mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. The infinite eternal, almighty God of the universe left the glories of heaven and took on flesh. The creator of Mercury and Venus became a fetus. He never ceased being God, but God humbled himself by becoming a man. And he wasn't born into a wealthy family or a powerful family, but into poverty with nowhere to lay his head. And so he was laid in a manger and God dwelt among us. In the words of Bishop J.C. Ryle, he that was with God and was God is also Emmanuel, God with us. I love verse 14 because verse 14 literally says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And that may sound weird to you. That probably means nothing to, to you, but that verse would have meant everything to the average Jewish reader. You see, in the garden, God walked among man and lived in their presence. But after Adam's fall, Man was exiled from God's presence. And then a few thousand years later, God God told the Israelites, hey, build me a tent, build me a tabernacle. And it was in that tent of meeting that man would meet with God and offer sacrifices for his sins. And eventually David's son Solomon, he builds a temple and the glory of God fills it. There's fire falling down from heaven. The people are falling on their faces. And eventually God dwells among his people through the temple. And as great as the temple was, it was never meant to be a permanent solution. The temple was only a picture of something greater to come. And then the word becomes flesh, a living, breathing tabernacle, the true and better tabernacle, because it was in the person of Jesus Christ that God once again walked among men. And today Christ is still our tabernacle because he is still the place where we meet with God to have our sins forgiven. He is the true and better high priest who offered himself on the cross as the true and better sacrifice. He was the spotless lamb of God come to take away our sin. For though he was sinless in every way, though he was completely innocent, he humbled himself by dying the death of a criminal on a Roman cross. That Jesus, the eternal word, God's only begotten son, laid his glory by and was born to die. 
He became incarnate so that he could substitute himself on the cross for all who would believe, for all who would come into the family. And then he rose to ensure that we would have life and life eternal. Jesus is the only natural son. The rest of us are adopted son, which is why Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. Because in the incarnation, we have seen his eternal divine glory. And so this is how we tell the difference between those who are born of God and those who are not. If you are tired of Jesus, if you're bored with Christianity, if Christmas is nothing more than a nice sentimental holiday, then you have not seen his glory. But if there's nothing your heart longs more for than to be with Jesus, then you can be sure that you have seen his glory and that you have been born of God. Not by your will, but by his will, you were born again and then you believed and then you were given the right to become a child of God and you were adopted into the family of God. I know some people are bothered by these verses because they they think it means that we don't have any free will. But listen to me, we do have free will. But in our sinful flesh, we will always freely choose sin. In our sinful flesh, we will always freely choose the darkness over the light. If you want pure, unadulterated freedom, I can guarantee that every one of us would freely choose the broad way that leads to destruction. But when God sends his spirit, when God brings about the new birth, when God takes out someone's sinful heart of stone and puts within them a heart of flesh, then they will gloriously, joyfully, freely choose to believe in Jesus. My prayer this morning was to present to you a big God, a sovereign God, an eternal God, a God worthy of your worship. Because in John 1, we saw three titles for Jesus, the eternal word, the long expected light, and the incarnate son. So let me ask you, have you been born of God or are you just bored with Jesus? Has God opened your eyes so that nothing is more precious to you than Christ? And do you see Christmas as just another holiday or is the miracle of Christmas everything to you? Well, I have two pastoral charges for you this morning. I have two ways that we can take this passage and apply it to our lives. First pastoral charge, come into the family. Come into the family. Today, if you have received Jesus and have believed in his name for your salvation, then you have been adopted into the family of God So much so that now God is your father, Jesus, your elder brother, and the church, your family. If that's not you, if you have not believed in his name, if you have not received Jesus, let me urge you, come into the family. Today, if you have never believed in Jesus, turn away from the broad road and enter by the narrow way which leads to life. Repent of your sin and trust alone in Jesus. And he will give you the right to become his child and to be welcomed into the family of God. And you will know that you have, in fact, been born again of God. Second pastoral charge, bask in the glory of Christmas. Bask in the glory of Christmas. If you went up to someone in the Adirondacks about mid-February and you gave them an all-expenses-paid trip to Hawaii, and you imagine that they get to their hotel They open the doors in their balcony. They walk out into the sun. Imagine them saying, I wonder how I'm going to apply this trip to my life. 
No, they would just bask in the warmth of the sun and simply enjoy it. And church, let me say that one of the greatest applications, one of the greatest ways you can take John 1 is simply by turning what you have learned in this passage into worship. To direct your heart to worship and love and adore and praise God. To simply marvel at the miracle of the incarnation. Hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2. For Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And all the people said, let's pray. Triune Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise and honor and glory and majesty. Today we praise you as our creator, as our redeemer, for you have given us light in our darkness, pardon for our sins, and hope in our turmoil. Lord, for all those who have not been born again, work in their hearts now that they may be drawn to Christ by the power of your word, and may they choose to believe in Jesus. And may we leave this place now in awe of who you are and what you've done for us through Christ and the miracle of Christmas. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that, that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.